0: So, uh, I, 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 you know, of course, the color code thing here, I, I see that there's a lot of students. I'm really excited about that, that there's students in here, um, because you guys are, because frankly, my generation screwed things up pretty bad, and, and, uh, and we need you guys to straighten some things out, and unfortunately, the folks that are training and teaching you uh, in, in med school and in residency are probably not going to be much help in teaching you how to straighten things out. So you're going to have to think on your own. You're going to have to think outside the box. You're going to have to reach to God for the mind of Christ to help straighten out some things that, uh, that we need help with really bad. Um, so other than students, um, how many physicians or, I don't know, is it, is it politically correct to just say providers, nurse practitioners, PAs? How many of those have we got in the room here? Okay, a handful. That's good. And um, nurses, how many nurses have we got? Great, a couple of nurses. That's good. You guys surrounded, front and back row there. So. Um, and uh, let me see, all you other blue collar people here, uh, what 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 are some things? I know that uh, we have an administrator of a Christian community health clinic from Alaska here, hiding behind the guy in the blue shirt. Good morning, <laughs> Andre. Any anybody here work in a, in a community health center or a Christian clinic, some, a Christian clinic that works with the underserved by chance? That's okay. There's still time. So, um, all right. There you go. We need, we need some good ones up in Glen Allen Alaska where you can go out every morning and club a salmon in the head and have it <laughs> okay if you if you didn't read about you know I, I hope that you guys actually read page 67 in elements which is where you're supposed to be taking notes today um, because because I I understand from some of my friends that the, the name of this, of this workshop might be a little bit misleading. First, do no harm. We understand that to be a principle in medicine, and uh, especially in emergency medicine, and it's, um, and it's one of those first things that people teach you in med school. And uh, we're not going to be talking about doing no harm to the patient that's in front of you. We're talking about today how well-intentioned people can thoughtlessly contribute to a broken system that continues to hurt and crush people all over our country and uh, and so how we as Christians have a responsibility to not just look at the patient in front of us pray for the patient in front of us be Christians to the patient in front of us but to also be a prophetic demonstration of what God's heart is for health care in our nation and um, you know I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that the Word of God is first and foremost meant to be witnessed and secondly to be and spoken. Now I don't think it's either or, I think it's both, but, I, but, but God's word is designed to be incarnate. And so whatever word he gives us, whatever mission he gives us, should be exemplified in our character, in our lives, in our actions, and in the things that we commit ourselves to. And so we are a people of the kingdom of God. We are uh, a people who are uh, committed to be uh, faithful to the mission that Jesus has given us which is not just to go tell people that if they believe in Christ, they go to heaven when they die, but it's to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. That whole salvation, forgiveness thing is a really, really important part of that. But he told us, he didn't say go into all the world and make converts. He said go into all the world and disciple the ethnos, disciple each and every culture, teaching the, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And when Jesus used the kind of language that he used talking about the gospel of the kingdom and the kingdom of God, people back then didn't think about that the way we think about it now. We've spiritualized it or internalized it, and in so doing, we've kind of reduced what God is after in terms of the kingdom of God in a generation. Um, But when Jesus used those terms, people thought he was a revolutionary. People thought that he might be guilty of treason. And there's a guy named Shane Claiborne. I don't know. Some of you guys may have read some of his stuff, and he's very provocative. And um, uh, and I'm, you know, I, I like reading his stuff because he he makes me he he forces me to think differently. And and I need to do that sometimes. But he wrote a book called Jesus for President, which I picked up thinking it was going to be a political book. It was not political at all. It was about the kingdom of God. And he was just saying. This is how this would be the message that Jesus would have if he were in our generation in this day. It says that the government of God is is here. You know that it's among you, it's within you, it's in me, it's in your midst, it's at hand, it's within reach. You can touch it just like this bottle is with is at hand. And so, as as ambassadors of His kingdom, we are people that represent things that are different. Than the things we actually participate in in the world, we're not called out. We're called to be in the world, but not of, and we're called to in being of, not be the same, but to be a prophetic signpost, if you will. I, I like what uh, uh, what Jim Elliot's you know prayed when he was at Wheaton before he went on the mission field, and he said, you know, Lord, I don't want to be a signpost that people pass on the road. I want to be a T-junction, that when people come to and see my life, that they have to turn to the right or to the left, and that's what God wants of us. He wants us to be a prophetic people. The sad thing for me is that I don't hear a lot of prophetic talk these days in the den of noise about health care in our country, and there's, a, there's just a tremendous amount of noise, and it's sad when Christians pick up talking points from other people, and we need to be people of the word. We need to be looking in the word. We need to be saying, and we need to be standing, I believe, we need to be standing outside of one political party or the other. And, um, and as another friend of mine said, we don't want to go to the right. We don't want to go to the left. We just want to go deeper, and we want to hold all sides accountable to what is in God's heart. So that's, I don't know, that's a, the preacher in me coming out for just a minute to kind of let you know where I'm coming from for Uh, For this workshop, and I'm going to try very very hard to not make this workshop all about everything that's wrong with healthcare because we all know those kinds of things. But I want to try to talk about specific practical things that we can do and commit ourselves to, or specific and practical things that we need to avoid in order uh, to keep from unintentionally and thoughtlessly perpetuating a broken system. Okay, we, you know, if, if any of you guys went to the, uh, I thought, very enjoyable and, and well-done uh, presentations yesterday afternoon by Dr. Art Jones and Dr. David Stevens as they talked a little bit about some healthcare care reform issues, whatever side you came down on on that or if you didn't come down on any side on that, there were a couple of things that were really clear, and that is that our system is broken. We've got 47 million people in America that are chronically uninsured, that's chronically uninsured. There's, at any given time, there's well over 55 million people. That's the lowest number that anybody's talking about. I've heard as, as high as 80 million people at any given time that are uninsured. Those are 2006, 2006 numbers, by the way, 47 million. That was before the economic explosion or implosion. Uh, We've got 96 million people in the United States of America who live in over 17,000 medically underserved areas. That's what an MUA is, a medically underserved area. Now, my organization, CCHF, is a domestic missions organization, domestic medical missions organization. And when I look at that, that, that's the country I'm going for. That's our nation. My nation is those 96 million people that live in 17,000 medically underserved areas. We need Christian physicians and Christian health workers and each and every one of those taking the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ to those people. They're the most receptive people in America, by the way, to the gospel. And so uh, we're seeing some amazing things happen around the country in, uh, in, in a lot of our clinics. We have the highest cost of health care in the world per person. Uh, we also have the lowest health outcomes. Uh, so we're not getting much for our money. Um, you know, In, in Memphis, Tennessee... We have three zip codes in Memphis, Tennessee, including the one that I live and minister in. Uh, when I'm not doing CCHF, and uh, uh, we, that particular zip code, 3801, 108 zip code has the highest infant mortality rate in the United States, and it and, and several other neighborhoods like it in Memphis, in Washington D.C., in Baltimore, and places in L.A. Uh, have a higher infant mortality rate than Botswana. Or then El Salvador. So something is wrong. It's 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 a it's a tragedy when a woman who lives in 38108 has literally ten times uh, her child has a uh, a one in ten chance of seeing its first birthday compared to a lady who lives four miles away. And uh, and there's something wrong with that system. And um, and so it's a broken system. So we, you know, we we don't need to spend much more time on that. Um, I th- this is to remind. These are these pictures are more for me than for you. So this is to remind me to try to maybe give an illustration of what I mean by well-intentioned people contributing to a broken system, but not meaning to. Um, I- I, I get a chance to travel around the world some, and I've I, uh, one of my favorite places to go is Zambia. I've got a real love for Zambia in my heart. Anybody been to Zambia here? Yeah, great place. So, what is the what's the uh, traditionally what has been the number one industry in Zambia? How does it make its money? Copper. Yeah, it's mi- mining. It's a mining country, and uh, of course, mostly the British came in and took all the copper, and so. The number, so, so the copper mines are mostly closed now. They're there's, there's still in the copper belt. There's still some things going on, but there's a huge unemployment. I've got a, we've got pastors that uh, have 90% unemployment in the copper belt in, in their churches, but these people were miners for generations and generations, and so the number two industry that they've fallen back on is fabrics, is the clothing industry. Uh, they 're textile uh, but, but it 's mostly small shops and homes you know they, they do all this kind of thing well there 's a lot of poverty in Zambia, and Zambia is very open to the gospel it 's uh, back in the early nineties it had a a president that it, i don 't know if any of you guys remember that, but I remember watching with tears in my eyes the inauguration speech of this guy as he dedicated his country to the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom and uh, they 've been very friendly, and so a lot of churches have sort of taken up Zambia's cause, and, and so one of the things that's happened is um, people have done what they could. It's like, let's help the poor people in Zambia, and they hear things, they go in Sunday school, they go home, they sit down with their families, and they pray for the Zambia on the map, and they want to do something nice, and they look around the house, and they begin putting things together that they can send to Zambia to help the poor people in Zambia. Zambia's number one import, as a result of all these well-intentioned people, is second-hand clothing. It's the number one import in Zambia, and so in an effort to help these people, what's happened is we have destroyed the only other uh, economic industry that they have in this country okay, in Zambia. So, when, so my first trip to Zambia, uh, the very first day that I was there after you know the jet lag experience was to drive 25 clicks from Livingston, Zambia out into the bush to a little church that had, where virtually everybody had come to Christ and we were going to visit this little church. And when I got there, everyone in the church was wearing a Guns N' Roses t-shirt. 25 miles in the bush, you know. Everybody in the entire church wearing their freshly cleaned Guns N' Roses t-shirt. I had no idea, they had no idea what they were or anything, but but this is, you know, this this what this is an example of people who are trying to do the right thing, but because they lacked a perspective of the impact of what they were doing, has ended up bringing a lot of hardship uh, on that nation. So, you know, my thing is this: is that here we are, we're in a broken system. You're in medical school, you're in residency, and you're not being taught to critique the system. You're being taught to fit into the system. Uh, you are being taught to, by default, continue to perpetuate the brokenness of a system that alienates millions and millions of people in our country from health care. And here you are, doctors and nurses being trained to bring health care to people because you love people. you love Jesus, you feel a call. This is wonderful. So my thing is you're either part of the uh, you, you, w- w- whether you want to be or not, you're either part of the problem or part of the solution. But we've got to come to that T-junction place today. We can't wait until tomorrow. We can't wait. Uh, you know, one of, the, one of the men said yesterday, says, you know, we haven't had reform in, in many years. What's another six months or another year going to matter? And I, that was, you know, I, I, with great respect, I just, the thought that came into my mind is it matters a whole lot to the 22,000 people that are going to die this year. In America, because they didn't get basic primary care. They didn't have access to basic primary care. Did I say 22 million? I meant 22,000. 22,000. And by the way, that's the lowest number that anyone is projecting. You know, Most people say that it will be probably 45,000. So it matters a lot to somebody, and we've got to get to that T-junction place. So choose to be part of the solution. All right, I want to, um, I want to just kind of start by... Um, I guess I've already started, hadn't I? I, I want to I take a few minutes and, and maybe give some examples of what I would call default practices that Christian health professionals are doing. All health professionals, frankly, are, are doing unless they're intentionally alerted to not do those things. That are perpetuating brokenness and harmfulness uh, of, uh, in the healthcare system in America. And, you know, the first one is this: is uh, we're seeing we're seeing patients now that are coming in and self-diagnosing, aren't we? And why is that? It's because they watch too much TV. And how many pharmaceutical ads are there on TV? I mean. There's an ad. There's a billboard. If you're driving, I was I was in Dayton, Ohio, visiting with some students a few weeks ago, and I was driving back to Cincinnati. There's this huge billboard, and it's an African American lady on the billboard, and she looks a little bit sad, and she's sort of staring at you, and it says, uh, it says, 35 uh, year old, you know, female, and it says, uh, are you, are you tired? Are you have you gained a little weight? Are you seeing a little bit of hair loss? And then in gigantic letters it says, "Could you have lupus, or could it be that you had your 35th birthday?" You know, <laughs> you know. Now, I mean, I don't want to make fun of things too much, but you know, there's a, there's an intended purpose for those kinds of things, and and, uh, and and we see so much. There's a reason why pharmaceutical companies are advertising. It's because it works. It's they, they, get you to, they get the patient to come in and feel that they're being cheated if you don't prescribe that expensive medicine for them when you know as a doctor uh, or as a health provider that there is a much cheaper alternative for them or in some cases that no medicine would be better than the medicine that they want but because they want it and frankly because they have insurance and because they're going to make your life miserable if you don't give it to them, you acquiesce and write a prescription. And when you do, you're perpetuating a problem. You're you're adding to the extreme and ridiculously out of control high cost of health care in our nation. Um, here's another one: drug reps. Um, we all love drug reps, don't we? I mean, they're they're so pretty, you know. And and they and they bring us stuff, you know. And we we get food and and uh, and, and pins and things like that. And I know more and more people are or waking up to the influence that that kind of thing has had over the years. I, I, I want to just confess to you that that about half of my family is drug reps. Um, so, I don't know. Um, but allowing influence from pharmaceutical companies or medical equipment companies to bend the way that you treat patients instead of practicing evidence-based medicine. Um, you know, it's things that we need to, to be aware of. Is that pharmaceutical companies are not particularly interested in the well-being of the patient. They are not. They don't answer to the patient. They answer to their stockholders. And they're not. They're, you know, there are Christians, I'm sure, that are pharmaceutical reps uh, that are that are. You know, blindly doing some things. Uh, I mean, I've got a disciple that's a PR guy for Pfizer, you know, for Pfizer, which is the largest pharmaceutical company in the world. Um, but you know, their first responsibility is to their stockholders. You know, when you take golf balls, pens, sticky notes, stethoscopes, food, fancy dinners, the big thing now is for them to say, "Hey, we want to um, we want to sponsor a continuing education course on knee surgery, and we think that uh, you know we think that you're really qualified to speak at that. And you don't have to promote our product or anything, but we'd really like for you to be the featured speaker. Would you do this?" and and then they pay a fee. You know, they pay expenses, or and then they begin to pay fees and things like that. There's a reason that they're doing that, and that's not because they're altruistic and that they feel that you know that they're trying to contribute to the health of our nation. It's that they're trying to uh, pad their bottom line. It's bottom line. So, here's a here's a, a recent study. A recent study: 80% of third-year medical students answered in a recent study that they believe that they're actually entitled to gifts from pharmaceutical reps, 80%. And then when that that 80% was asked, 68% of those that answered that they were entitled uh, said that they were convinced that gifts from pharmaceutical reps would have absolutely no influence at all on their prescribing habits. But every study that's been done, every single study that's been done, has shown that the more time a doctor... Spends with a pharmaceutical rep, the more irrational their prescribing habits become. Uh, they begin prescribing expensive drugs where, where cheaper, better, safer alternatives, or in some cases, no alternative, no drug at all, would have been a better choice than the drug that they're that they're uh, that they're prescribing. All right, here's another one. Bending into the culture of medicine. This is a back surgery picture obviously, but bending into a culture of medicine that increases the quantity of medicine without increasing the quality of medicine, um, just because that's the way that you were taught to do it. Uh, there's a, In Lewiston, Maine, women that reach a certain age need a hysterectomy, and they all get them. I mean, it's the highest... Uh, incidence of hyster or rate rate of hysterectomies in the country, and it's not because they're any sicker. It's just because the culture of medicine in Little Lewiston, Maine, has done that. If you live in uh, if you live in Fort Myers, Florida, and you move to Tampa and you're over the age of 65, you are 60 percent more likely to have back surgery if you present with lower back pain. It's just the culture in that one in that one city. Um, Harvard admits 300% more patients into ICU than Yale. And these are just, you know, and, and why is that? Is it they're seeing sicker patients? Is it they, there's a greater need for it? No, nope. it's just the culture of that of that particular area. And, and it's, a, it's an important thing for you to, uh, when you get to a place where you're going to practice, you're going to find that there's a, a subtle Unfelt pressure to drive you to certain medical practices that really do not improve health outcomes. Back surgery, back fusion surgery, I mean, it's very questionable as to whether it's even effective or any more effective than any other non-surgical treatments for back pain. Any back surgeons here, if you are, don't throw anything at me. There's a, there's certainly reasons for it, but uh, but I'm just saying that... Uh, that where there 's other alternatives in many places, the culture of medicine dictates not the outcomes or the evidence uh, that any of those things are better than any, anything else there's um, lots of great studies Dartmouth has done I know that was mentioned yesterday by by Dr. Stevens in that uh, in the presentation but uh, that's that 's a great uh, resource for understanding what how this culture of medicine varies from one city to another in the same state. Um, Here's another thing, um, another way to to perpetuate the broken system. Choosing a career path based on earning potential instead of a vocational, missional calling and need. We need primary care physicians and we need fewer specialists. I go to Christian student groups all over the country and I love to ask the question, how many of you have, or, or believe that God's calling you into primary care? And I get a smattering of hands that go up. In many of these places, I'll say, how many of you all believe God's calling you into radiology? And there'll be twice as many hands going up for radiology than go up for primary care or family medicine. Okay? I know that's... Think about that for just a second. And, and my, my 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 challenge is... We need Christian radiologists. We need Christian cardiac surgeons. We need we need Christians in all aspects of medicine. But there's a gigantic need for primary care. We are uh, somewhere around two percent of medical students are choosing primary care right now. Uh, I've had several people come to me this week. Students come to me and say, "What should I look for in a, in a family residency program?" It's easy to get into a family residency program in the United States. There's big, giant, gaping holes in every one of them. I mean, there's, it's, it's not that competitive to get into a family residency program because there's not enough people going into family residency, into family medicine. We need more generalists and less specialists. Generalists have... Until the last uh, generation, been always have always prior to that been considered the real thinkers in medicine, the people that have to know broad strokes of medicine and be able to deal with things on a broad level. And now it's you know we look at numbers and we send you here and things like that. But it's we've got to we've got to have a return to that. Um, so you know God's not calling 50% of the Christian medical students in America into radiology. I'm just telling you. Yeah, Andre. You know, a good example of that is that I can't use one specialist in Glen Allen, Alaska. I, really, I can use one. Yeah. can't one. You know, it would be interesting, too, to just sort of measure the health outcomes in your area, and I'll bet you anything compared to Glen Allen, Alaska, very rural, compared to Anchorage, I'll bet you the health outcomes are not that much different either. So... The question was that in the literature, uh, you're being told that family met- that family practice docs are becoming uh, physicians are becoming obsolete because of the rise of mid levels. Even with mid levels, there's a gigantic shortage. Uh, I mean, it's what was I reading yesterday in one of the sessions that by 2020 they're anticipating a shortage of 100 and 120,000 family practice docs um you, you know family practice family practice physicians if if we took every nurse practitioner and every pa student and put them in fam- in family practice it's not putting family practice docs out of business there's such a shortage and such a need that we could we could triple the number of family practice docs that are needed here's this is something unique about about medicine Medicine is the only market thats that doesn't obey the laws of supply and demand. You know, the, the laws of supply and demand in economics is where you have great supply, you have low demand. Where you have high demand, uh, demand goes up when supply goes down, and supply goes up when demand goes down, right? That's, that's sort of the law of supply and demand. In medicine, if you put... Um, In medicine, when a hospital builds cath labs, they fill up the cath labs. You know, when 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 an area has an increase in the number of of cardiovascular surgeons, the number of procedures that that go up, and it seems it's almost like the need rises with the supply it's it, it, when the supply goes up the demand goes up in medicine and and so and it's a, and that in itself is a frightening thing and because uh, there's no controls if you will there's no there's no reason for someone not to choose the lucrative career path of some specialties even though those specialties are not the addition of those specialties have not helped the health outcomes in America you know, other countries don't have nearly the specialists that we have. The, the, the balance is much more tilted towards primary care. And, uh, and the health outcomes are better. They, people live longer. They're healthier. Um, you know, there's, uh, America ranks last among the top 20 developed nations in almost every measure. I mean, and where, and where we don't rank last, we usually rank either second to last or third to last. Uh, Of the top 20 developed nations in America... Yeah. I, uh, so the comment was for the tape that uh, that it sounds like I'm laying the blame for all of this on medicine, and it's not just that. That we have good medicine in America, and we do. We have wonderful medicine in America. I'm not suggesting that we, you know, that we stop having CT scans. I'm just suggesting that maybe as many as we've had, or not, they're not. Those kinds of things are not helping us that much. But, and, and, and that the issue that the issue is lifestyle and compliance in our country. And again, that is true. We are a, I'm the poster child for that. I hate to tell you, but uh, but we we are we are an obese nation. We're 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 a nation that that doesn't take our own personal responsibility for health very seriously. And part of the problem there again is one of the roles in family medicine is to is for primary care doctors to develop relationships with patients. And that education is a significant part of that, and that's not going to happen, you know, with through the way that medicine is set up now. You're not reimbursed for it. You know, you're we're required to see more and more and more and more patients to get them through because you know you can't make money if you don't. And there's changes that need to happen in our system. I'm not. Blam- I won't say that I'm blaming medicine. I'm not blaming doctors for all of this. I think that the way that Universities have, um, uh, have, have encouraged people. You know, I feel like that Saturday Night Live guy that fi- starts a thought and never finishes it. I'm in that rut right now. Let me start. I see a lot of first and second year students that are answering the call of God to come into medicine. Third and fourth year med school they are told just like you, you, just what you've said. Family medicine is obsolete. We need more and more specialists. Frankly, you can get loan repayment easier if you become more, you know, more specialized in medicine. And what I'm telling you is this: our nation does not need more of an imbalance in that way. We need more generalists, and we need generalists to help hold people accountable. We need generalists to build relationships with patients across the board. We need generalists to educate patients that everything that they see on television or read on the internet when they show up at your office with reams of paper that they've printed out telling you why they think they have the the five most popular diseases on the internet now, we we need generalists to help educate and spend time with and develop relationship with patients. So I I don't mean, I'm I'm not trying to put the, I'm not trying to put the blame on doctors, but I am saying if somebody's going to change it, there's no incentive for it to change in the med schools, there's no incentive for it to change in the hospitals. The pharmaceutical companies, the insurance companies, and I'm not even sure the federal government has a motive to change it. But as people who love Jesus and love people, I think we've got the, whether it's our fault or not, let's take the responsibility and make the changes. That's what that's what we're trying to do. Let me let me get through this real real quick cuz I do want to have a few minutes for discussion and these are great questions and they're real questions. I also want to say this. I don't I'm not I'm not suggesting that I've got the answer here. The the goal of this workshop is to at least get us engaged in thinking about these issues. You know, you're gonna come up with different answers. I, I I I have the joy of working with um uh with with about two to three hundred health Christian health clinics that are really trying to become distinctively Christian, provide distinctively Christian care. And one of the things that I've learned is this I haven't been to two of them that are the same. They're all unique. It's because God has put his creative spirit in each and every one of us and people have have put something that is uniquely effective for their neighborhood or for their culture or for the, the, the group of people that they're serving. And it looks different than everybody else's in some ways. There's, there's principles that are the same. But th- there's room for lots of different right answers to this problem. And, um, and so I'm not, uh, I'm not being dogmatic about one thing or another. But I am saying that these are things that we at least need to question. Why are we doing this? Why are we, why are we choosing specialties? The last thing I want, the last one that I want to mention this morning, and you know we could probably have a discussion about 20 other things here, but um, and that is that that when you adopt a lifestyle that requires or mandates that you can or what you can or cannot do in terms of charity work, in terms of service and care for the poor, you're contributing to the problem. Okay? Here's a question. There's nothing wrong with this house. I love this house. I like visiting this house. I would like to live in this house. But there's a cost to, to the lifestyle decisions that you make. And, uh, and we see more, more medical students uh, that, that got into medicine feeling that they were called into mission who get trapped when they go working in private practice or whatever to get loans paid off. And the next thing you know, they're buying a house, and then the next one's bigger, and the next one's bigger. And they've got the, the cars, their kids are in private schools. There's nothing wrong with any of that, but there's a cost associated with all of that. So here's the question. If you live in a modest $350,000 house and you drive two $20,000 cars and you send your 2.3 children to the local Christian private school and you tithe to the church and you give, of course, to CMDA or CCHF or one of your local missions groups because you have a heart for, the, uh, for missions in the world and we want to support those that are going overseas, Um, how many Medicaid patients can you see a week? How many uninsured patients can you see in a month if you do those kinds of things? I was was, uh, challenged. One of our our doctors in Augusta, Georgia, um, sat down one day because he he was thinking, you know, uh, I'm not making a whole lot of money taking care of the poor here. And he's in Augusta, Georgia. There's a big medical college there. Anybody go to medical college of Georgia in in Augusta here? Okay, but there's a big medical college there, and it's a it's a medical center. It's a big medical center. And he is surrounded. He's in a culture of, in in the in the medical fraternity. He is feeding on the bottom financially, and. There's a pressure associated with that when all of your peers are doing better than you. And so he actually sat down one day and wrote down, okay, I think it would be reasonable for me to have this kind of house, this kind of car, and for me to send my kids to this kind of school. And he actually did the math and figured out how many Medicaid patients and how many uninsured patients he could see. And he figured he could do it if he cut the number of people that he saw that really had needs by something like 80%. And if he stopped tithing or at least cut his giving back in other, in other areas and sat down with his wife and his kids and the older kids that he has and, and shared all this with them. And they prayerfully said, we think it's more important to serve the poor. We think it's more important to do the kinds of things that we're doing. And we're going to be content to be we'll be supportive of the lifestyle that we that we choose. God calls us to live a sacrificial lifestyle. You know, are you, here's another thing that I hear. I've got, my best friend's a pediatrician, and is and, um, a good fishing buddy of mine. I love this guy dearly. We've been really great friends for years, and he's a partner in one of the largest pediatric groups in Memphis. He's a Christian. He tithes. He's very generous. He even gives to our ministry. He um, uh, goes to church, plays in the worship band. Um, his kids are, grown and gone, and he and his wife just built a 5,000-square-foot house where they could display their art collections, and, and uh, he's in a, he's, most of the partners in his, in his group are Christians. They meet together. They start every board meeting with prayer. He prays for his patients, but they will not take Medicaid patients in their practice because they can't afford it, and that's a problem. A little bit of a source of contention between he and I. I still love the guy. I still like to go fishing with him. You know, I mean, he's still part of the kingdom of God, but he's perpet—and I've told him—he's perpetuating a problem in our nation. Even though he's a good guy, he just doesn't want to see it. He's got the blinders on, and and uh, his first priority is to take care of his family. Well, my first priority is to take care of my family too. Um, but I've decided a long time ago with my kids that. The most important inheritance I can leave them is a set of values that values the things that I believe Jesus values, which Jesus had no problem with big houses. Jesus liked people with big houses, but Jesus loved the poor and um, and, and so there, you know if you can do this and the other at the same time, God bless you, go for it. I hope that Christians end up with all the money and all the big houses. I don't have any problem with any of that. Some people I know have real struggles with that. I think uh, he who is faithful with little will be entrusted with much. I, I've got no problem with any of that, but uh, but when it's done at a cost of what of your conscience, of your service, of your mission, then that's a that's a problem, and it's a very common trap that people fall into. Okay, enough with the negative stuff. So. Um, this is the part that needs to be a dialogue. I've got a, um, I've got a few things that I think as Christians are worth us thinking through biblically. okay? I think there's a lot of good medical practice that needs to be changed. and And I think there's lots of wonderful books that you can read and lots of good education out there. My concern to be honest with you is, as an ambassador to the kingdom of God, I want to speak from the word okay i think if if we want distinctively Christian health care, if we think that that is something that is that 's part of the solution then let 's at least start in the Bible and then we can add things to to that from there and so i 've listed um, and these are not i don 't have slides for this, so if you want to take notes, you can, and if you want to not take notes that 's fine too but i 've listed six things that I think uh, are reflective of distinctively Christian care. And the first thing is that it's holistic care. It treats people as whole people. It doesn't just look at them as a, a panel for diseases it's it, or, um, it, or as physical beings. That's a secular view of health and, and of people. But it recognizes, like in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, where it says, uh, uh, where he talks about your whole body, soul, and spirit, that people are body, soul, and spirit, and, and that, and that health care is interrelated. Most people agree, whether they're Christians or not, that a person's spiritual beliefs affect their physical health. Uh, most patients believe that, too. And most patients would tell you that they think it's it, it's perfectly appropriate for their physician to talk to them about spiritual issues because they understand the integration of those things. When you're physically sick, it can harm your spirit. When you're spiritually sick, it can harm your body. And, um, and one of the reasons we have what we have in America, the lifestyle that we live in America, is because people have divorced this concept of body, soul, and spirit. We're physical beings. We're just material girls, aren't we, you know? But um, living in a material world. But integrating spiritual care with physical, mental, social health. Um, uh, holistic care. I think, I think health care that, ref, that reflects the heart and character of God has to treat people as spiritual as well as physical people. Uh, a second thing is, what is the goal of health care? And, and that's worth about 12 workshops right there, just defining what is health. Or what is the goal of health care? Is, is it to make people live longer? Is it to make people live better? What's the what's the goal of health? And, and there's some great debates out there. I want to encourage you guys to, to be a part of that debate, to think that through, to dialogue. Ask the question sometime among your peers. What do you think health really is? What is the goal of health? Well, I don't have the answer to that either, but let me suggest that a good starting point for Christians is the concept of shalom. Uh, shalom is more than peace. You know, I know it's translated peace in the Bible, and then we think of peace as the absence of conflict, but that's not what peace is scripturally, and that's not what shalom is. But shalom has to do with relational harmony with one another and with God, with themselves. Uh, it has to do with overall well being. It has very little to do with circumstances. It has very little to do with whether you have plenty or whether you're in want. It it has to do with Contentment and just general well-being of soul, as well as of body. But I think that you know that's a, that's a, this is a good a good dialogue to begin to have with your peers. What is the goal of health? How can we see shalom in our patients? And uh, begin to pray for your patients that way. Um, learn what that means. I uh, you know talk about that a little bit more. Number three is I think any health care that is distinctively Christian is always going to care for the poor, for the widow, and for the alien without respect of their educational or cultural status, without respect of their ability to pay, and without respect of their citizenship. I think as an American there's all kinds of good reasons that I think our our government should not pay for illegal aliens' health care. I got no problems with government policies on that. I'm not trying to be political here, but I'm just telling you how I think, okay? But as a Christian, I can't. I'm an ambassador of a different kingdom, and my kingdom is as wide as the earth. It's, it encompasses all nations. And if God wants to bring me somebody from a foreign country to my doorstep, I'm going to take care of them, and I'm not going to ask them, do they have papers? Uh, I, I was a pastor for 13 years, and um, I was with a network of churches, and we had a church that was helping a. Little health clinic that um, that was seeing the poor, and they were all excited about it. And um, until one day, one of the pastors visited the clinic and saw that it was full of Hispanic people. And he asked the guy that was running the clinic, "How many of these guys do you think are here illegally?" And the honest answer would probably have been all of them. But you know, the guy said, "I don't know, and we don't ask. If they show up with needs, we take care of them." And the pastor then went and told his church we can no longer support that group because they're enabling people to do Ill- illegal activities. Now, I, I, That's a really wonderful American concept, but that is a not, that's not a kingdom concept. It's not a Christian concept. And we have to make decisions. We have to constantly ask ourselves, Are we being, have we allowed our national culture to seep into our Christianity? Or are we standing as a prophetic demonstration of the way God's heart is for all people? Um, you know, if we want to be distinctively Christian in health care, what made Jesus distinct? Well, Philippians 2 says this, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And in that passage of scripture, it goes on to, it starts with him, him saying, Prefer one another. And then goes on and talks about the sacrifice of Jesus and and if we're going to be distinctively Christian we're going to have to be overtly sacrificial it means that we are taking care of people at a cost at a personal cost to ourselves so one of the, again one of the, I don't have I, I have no problem with people's rights about what they to feel what they feel about health care reform but it really concerns me when I hear when I, I was invited recently to a rally in Memphis to celebrate our God given rights to um, to have government free health care. To he- not have free health care from the government, but health care that's free from any government control. And it was an anti health care reform rally for Christians where they were standing up and saying, This is our God given our God given right to throw off the government and that kind of thing. I and, and and the issue was we don't want healthcare reform to change anything that we're personally enjoying. That was the every speech, every uh, thing that was said was was about what we what I will lose if they do this in order to help poor people. Now I may not agree with what's going on in terms of healthcare reform, but I have to disagree as a Christian with that attitude because we are called to prefer one another, to live sacrificially in order for others to have. And so um, let me... Uh, a good friend of mine was at a conference, and he was talking like this uh, about a year ago, and uh, and it's not the first time that he's shared these messages. And, and uh, uh, at the end, there was a lady that's a physician who asked a question. She said... Um, she said, you know, doctor, I, I've sat in your sessions before, and last year I uh, went back to my practice, and we decided that we were going to designate a certain percentage of our patients to see that we're Medicaid patients or uninsured patients. And she said, we've been trying this for a year, and the problem is that the, our highest no-show rates are among that group of people. And uh, so we're sitting here looking at empty exam rooms and empty waiting rooms because the people we want to help and have offered to help no longer show up and we can no longer we just no longer feel that we can we can do this what do you say to that I don't know what do you say to that it's true it's true poor people don't show up for appointments yeah there needs to be some accountability and there needs to be some responsibility yeah, yeah but I just like I tell my own children you're not responsible for other people's activities you're responsible for your own yeah so. And if you use that as an excuse not to see poor people or make an appointment with them, yeah. then it's not their problem anymore; it's yours. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That's a, that's a that's a big thing too, but you know, and I, I I raised the question because I don't think it's an easy answer. You know, I, I did this with a student group recently, and. And, um, you know, the students began debating, well, what about the people that needed care that didn't get appointments that day because they were set aside for the people that didn't show up? Well, I don't know about everybody, and there's a lot of irresponsibility out there, but let me let me share a story with you. This is a uh, – my wife and I and my family have worked in the inner city of Memphis for many years, and and uh, these, these are pictures that I took three days ago. This is uh, – rosie 's house, Rosie just had eye surgery, and uh, Rosie didn 't want me to take a picture of her because she didn 't see well enough to find her wig and um, and so she didn 't want her picture without her wig and she and you have to know Rosie to know that she wouldn 't even mind at all that I told you that or that i 'm even using her real name um, but, uh, uh, but 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 this is rosie 's house she rents this house. Um, and it's not a bad-looking house. It's it's in a pretty rough neighborhood in Memphis. Uh, she lives there with her um, her son and her daughter and her daughter's little baby. Uh, her son just actually is the first one to ever graduate from high school in their, in their family. Uh, this is her son. Uh, we call him Big D. His name's Darnell. Uh, Darnell came to Christ about two years ago, and he's a son in the faith to me. I'm a disciple in Darnell, and... Really proud of him. He graduated from high school. He's going to the uh, university in Arkansas now, and, uh, and, and his mom is so proud of him she can't see straight. Uh, but uh, she couldn't see straight anyway because she just had eye surgery. You know? But, but uh, um, uh, Rosie hadn't had electricity in her house since mid-July, and uh, she cooks on a grill on the front porch. And when I was over there day, a few days ago, uh, I walked around the back of the house, and there's during the day there's an extension cord that runs from her house to the next-door neighbor's and another extension cord that runs through her backyard and through the next-door neighbor's backyard behind her into their house. And they let her use their electricity to run a light and a little bit of – she doesn't have a refrigerator. She doesn't have any lights on in the house. She runs a television during the day, and she runs a couple of lights in the kitchen so she can clean during the day and then unplugs it you know, at night. Um, but she had not had electricity since, since mid-July, but dadgummit, her son's in college, you know, and that's a wonderful thing. Uh, this is Rosie's neighborhood, uh, very typical, a lot of brown space, a lot of uh, foreclosed homes, um, very few homeowners. She's not a homeowner. This is the closest thing to a bank within a three-mile radius of Rosie's house. Um, this is Rosie's grocery store. Najak Market, groceries, deli, pizza, beer. More pizza and beer, but lottery tickets. They've got lot. You can get your lottery tickets, your pizza, and your beer there. Um, they do not sell fresh vegetables. They don't sell fresh fruit. There's not a grocery store in her neighborhood that sells anything fresh. The uh, uh, she walks here because the most popular place in her neighborhood to buy groceries is the Mclemore's Market, which is basically a like a 7-Eleven type place where people go down and buy uh, Vienna sausage and, and whatever they have in foil bags for dinner. Um, you know, this is, the way, this is the way Rosie lives. Now, a couple of weeks ago when she had surgery, I was at another conference, and I got a text from Big D, from Darnell, and said, Are you in town? My mom is scheduled for eye surgery, and she had to go for a checkup today because her eye surgery is tomorrow. But her car doesn't work. And, um, but it worked well enough to get out of the driveway and halfway there, but it broke down on the side of the road. Now, like you said, you know, it's like, what is going on behind the scenes here? I feel sorry for the doctor who was willing to take this lady who um, doesn't have insurance to do. I mean, I, I think it's wonderful that there was a doctor willing to see her. But she was a no-show. She, had, she was a no-show. I think with a lot of these people, it's amazing that they get up and get anywhere. Um, Rosie's about 5 foot. She probably weighs about 225 pounds. She's got a scar that runs from her temple all the way down to her chin uh, where a boyfriend cut her years ago. It's a terrible scar. As a result, she's not been able to get work. Nobody's going to hire her. You know, um, she cleans hotel rooms from time to time when she can get the work. But she doesn't have reliable transportation, public transportation in her neighborhood. I looked it up just to, so that I could be accurate. And it's a three-quarter of a mile walk through a neighborhood you wouldn't walk through to get to the nearest bus stop to take her to the medical center. So, the, you know, this is the, these are the way people live. And, and, and um, I, I'm not saying this to make you feel bad, but to just say what Rosie needs, in addition to a doctor to operate on her eye, is she needs somebody to get into her life. She needs somebody to just know how she's living. Um, it means so much when somebody just drops in and checks on her. Um, you know, when her cell phone is working occasionally, you know, you can reach her by cell phone. But sometimes her cell phone doesn't work because, you know, it's either that or, you know, buying food at an Ajac market for her sometimes. So anyway, sacrifice is is something that um, that God calls us to as and he calls us to that as an expression of love. I, I think that um, let me go back here. The the if we we're going to do distinctively Christian health care, you cannot leave out this quality of love. It's got to be love-based health care. And I know good and well that in med school and residency, they try to train that out of you. Don't get a, you've got to limit your involvement. And I don't know the answer for all that. I, I really don't. But, but I know this, that, um, that 1 Corinthians 13.3 says, If I give all I have to the poor and surrender my body to the flames and have not love, it counts for nothing. And so sacrifice is wonderful, but it's but the ultimate thing that God calls us to is love. He calls us to love. He calls us to express love. He calls us to... Love cannot be impersonal. Love requires a personal investment. Love requires seeing a person, knowing a person. It requires that. Um... You know we've got a we've got a doc that named Myron Glick that's up in uh, Buffalo, New York, and he's a family practice doc, and his entire practice is seeing people on Medicaid and people without insurance. Uh, he sees poor people all the time, all day long. He's, he sees 32 patients a day is his is his personal average. Some days he sees more than that. Now, I don't know how a doctor does that to be honest with you. I know a lot of you guys probably do that, but. Uh, Thirty-two patients a day is a lot. And I asked Myron one day, I said, Myron, how do you spend enough time with patients when you're seeing that many patients a day? And he looked at me and he laughed and he said, because I'm, I've i been here for 15 years and I'm going to be here for 15 years. He said, I'm not trying to do everything with a patient in one visit. He said, I'm sitting here telling this patient, I'm your doctor. If you need me, you come in and we'll and I'll see you. And um, and I may not spend much time with you, but I'll spend as much I'll spend as many times with you as I need. And he's built incredible relationships with the people that he serves over that time. And he shares Christ with them, and he takes them food when he finds out that they're hungry, and he puts them in touch with a social worker when he finds out about their needs. And I mean, he's he started a nonprofit organization next to his clinic. Um, that raises that's a nonprofit that 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 raises funds to be able to meet some of the social needs of the patients that he makes connections with in his clinic. So I, there's, there's there's a lot of ways to do this, but I but I I just want to urge you strongly to as Christians let's think biblically about what how we need to express the character and the love of Christ. Uh, to people in need, and and and, through, and to everyone. Not not that we need to love poor people more than we love anybody else, but we need to love poor people the same. So, I don't know. That's a this workshop could have gone a lot of different directions, and we could have gone for another two hours or five hours or something like that. But I'm just hoping that maybe there's some things to begin to provoke you to think. Beyond the patient in front of you, continue to do a great job. Continue to love the patient that's in front of you, but but at the same time, begin to think about how your practice of medicine can be redemptive in the fallen system of medicine, and not just perpetuate things that are that are going on. Any questions before we break? Yes, sir. Yeah, I didn't I didn't get the last one. Yeah, the last one is the presence of God. Oh, you only got three, okay. Uh, Yeah, gee, I didn't do a very good job on that. Yeah, holistic care, shalom as a goal, caring for the poor, the widow and the alien, the marginalized, if you will. Sacrificial, being sacrificial. Um, Love, agape love that builds dignity, value, empowers that respects, understands, genuine care, 1 Corinthians 13 type of love, and the presence of God. Those are the six things that I had. And the, the, the presence of God, <laughs> that's a big one, isn't it? I, I'd, lo- I'd love to do that one, but i just—I I, I, got to stop there. So I've got a booth in the lower level down here if you guys want to come by and, and, and talk. And um, feel free to engage me in conversation. But more importantly, engage one another and pray. Ask God for wisdom. Um We've got an amazing opportunity right now to be a redemptive force in health care. But it's going to mean that we've got to think differently than we've been trained to think. So I'm going to pray and then dismiss you. Lord, we commit this hour to you. God, I commit this time to you. Father, I, um, Father, where we've foolishly babbled, I just pray, God, that those words would die in memory and in the air but God where you've been honored I ask Lord that you exalt those things and 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 write them Lord tattoo them permanently in our hearts and Father use us as a prophetic people in our generation to do something great to demonstrate your heart on a, on a big scale and to individuals as well and I pray Lord these things that you be honored in Jesus name amen thank you very much